There it is. <laughs> I got to look behind me this morning. Well, it's great to be with you all this morning, and uh, I would like to uh, extend greetings to you from the folks in Zambia, uh, from Karen, the teachers, the students uh, who send you greetings here this morning. And uh, we very much appreciate the partnership that we've had with you for the past 20 years as we try to make a difference in Zambia. And I want to thank Josh for giving me the opportunity to fill in for him uh, today while he is away. And of course, you all have been studying through the book of 2 Corinthians for the last few weeks and uh, talking about how that we are ambassadors of Christ. And of course, the main uh, text there comes from chapter 5 where Paul says that God is reconciling us into himself but more than that he's given us a ministry of reconciliation and as Christ ambassadors we are now reaching out to others in order to bring them in a relationship with God to reconcile them into the family of God and so I think as you look at this passage the one word that kind of sticks out to me is the word relationships I mean it really comes down does it not to relationships and I, I think that maintaining healthy relationships maintaining the unity of the body in the church is something that is very very critical and very important to our calling as uh, ambassadors of Christ one of the criticisms that's often uh, levied against Christianity is well these people aren't very loving they don't uh, they're very judgmental. They, didn't, they don't get along with one another. I mean, look how many divisions and denominations there are in Christianity. Now, I know that's a bit of an excuse, but there's a lot of truth to that, and that kind of stings, does it not? And it's become a barrier to Christian missions and evangelism for many years because our life and our unity doesn't hold up to the teachings of Jesus. Now, I think the passage that we're looking at this morning from 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter that we're going to be looking at, has a lot to do, uh, has a lot to say about uh, dealing with conflict and how we can go about maintaining healthy relationships in the body of Christ. Of course, uh, anytime we talk about the Corinthian letters, we have to do a lot of work trying to reconstruct the historical context. Have you ever listened to someone talking on the phone and you're trying to figure out what they're talking about? It can be pretty difficult. Uh, you know, especially with Lori and I, she gets on the phone and she start, starts talking to someone and I'm trying to figure out what they're talking about. And if you know my wife, she is uh, very empathetic and she is emo emotionally very expressive to the point of being very dramatic. And she gets on the phone and she starts talking to someone like Karen in Zambia and she's you start listening and she's saying, oh, I'm sorry, oh, that's, that's terrible. I mean, what did you do? And I'm sitting there about to have a heart attack saying, what in the world is going on? I mean, has uh, somebody died in Zambia? I mean, has another windstorm come and blown the roof off the primary school again? I mean, what's happening? And I start interrupting, what's going on? And Glory finally turns around and says, Karen lost her phone and couldn't find it for two hours. <laughs> and I go, that's it? You almost gave me a heart attack over that? We have learned, Lori and I, that it's best for my sanity that when she goes to talk on the phone, she just needs to go in the other room where I can't hear her. It really uh, helps me in not having a heart attack. Well, when we're talking about the Corinthian letters, we are trying to reconstruct what's going on there. And we're only listening to one side of the conversation. We know that Paul wrote four letters. And we know that they had written to him in Ephesus, and some of them had even come to visit him. And so we're trying to figure out what's going on at Corinth. Why did Paul write these letters? What are the problems at Corinth that he's trying to deal with? 
Well, it appears that there are some leaders, there are some teachers that have attacked Paul. They're challenging the legitimacy of his apostleship, and they are undermining his relationship with the Corinthians. And so we ask ourselves, uh, who are these people who are attacking Paul? Uh, who are these leaders who are attacking Paul? Uh, now, if you study the Greek culture, there is one group, ancient Greek culture, there's one group that really begins to stand out. Because all the things you hear Paul saying about them in the Corinthian letters, uh, these guys just really fit the bill. And that is what we would call the sophist. Uh, it comes from the Greek word that has to do with wisdom, uh, Sophia. And so what these guys are, they're basically itinerant, traveling teachers of philosophy and rhetoric. They travel from place to place, basically looking for work. And so what they would typically do, they enter into a new town where they want to establish themselves. They would ask to speak to the town council, which was quite frequently, people love to hear people speak. You know, they love the uh, rhetoric. And so Paul, uh, the sophists would enter the town, they would speak to the uh, town assembly, and uh, their goal was to try to impress the people. Uh, they're especially trying to impress some wealthy patrons there who might hire them to teach their children or uh, to represent them politically in public or to uh, speak for them uh, in a court uh, case. And so these, it would appear that these sophists have uh, moved into uh, Corinth and uh, they have impressed many in the congregation with their rhetoric, their impressive uh, speech and uh, they had gained considerable influence in the church and many in the church appear to have fallen under the spell of these uh, sophist teachers and if you listen to Paul it's clear that what he what's going on he believes they're doing it for profit and they're teaching a moral philosophy that seems to differ from the ethical teachings that Paul had delivered to them and you hear Paul in 1 Corinthians trying to deal with some of these ethical matters He's, he tries to clarify some misunderstanding that's been kind of messed up with some of the sophist teachings and but it's in second corinthians that paul gets much more personal and he calls them out and in the last at the end of second corinthians he denounces them as false teachers and so it's pretty obvious as you look at the corinthians uh chapter the first chapter of corinthians you can kind of see what's going on uh, Paul says, look, I hear there's quarrels, divisions among you. Some say, I'm a Paul, I'm a Peter, I'm a Paulus, I'm a Christ. And I don't think the problem is, is Peter, Paul, and Apollos. I don't think they're there trying to get a following and a patronage and trying to get work. But I think that Peter, Paul, and uh, Apollos are kind of representing their kind of examples to explain, uh, to identify. And Paul may not even know who all these sophist teachers are, but I think everyone at Corinth understands who he's really talking about, uh, who, are who are causing the problems there. And so uh, Paul is uh, being undermined and attacked by these guys. And so when you really look and try to reconstruct the situation there, there are some people who are listening to Paul, and then there are those who are listening to these sophist teachers and have kind of fallen under their spell. But I believe that there is kind of a middle group which probably represents the uh, bulk of the congregation there and uh, they're kind of confused because these sophists have uh, uh, challenged the legitimacy of Paul's apostleship and, and they're not quite sure about Paul and their relationship with Paul now has been strained 
And so it's for that reason that Paul then writes the first uh, letter called 1 Corinthians. But that didn't really solve the problem. So then Paul made a personal visit to Corinth, which is called the sorrowful uh, visit. And he talks about this in chapter 7, uh, where he went there. And there appears that there was some man who was there who had confronted Paul. And uh, we're not quite sure what he exactly did, but he apparently uh, attacked Paul during his personal visit. He disrespected Paul, and the rest of the Corinthians apparently didn't say anything. They didn't do anything. They didn't stand up and defend Paul. They just kind of stood by where this man attacked Paul, and it was apparently so bad that Paul cut his visit short and went back to Ephesus. He kind of got run out of town. And so it's at that point that uh, Paul, and he talks about this, he wrote the uh, uh, sorrowful letter, and he talks about this uh, letter that uh, grieved them. But the response was very positive. Uh, they repented. Uh, they disciplined this man who had attacked uh, Paul, and he had repented, and they repented for what had happened, and the relationship was restored. And yet, there are still some problems at Corinth. Uh, the sophist teachers are still there. Some of them are still under their spell. And so that is why Paul then ends up writing the book of 2 Corinthians. So that's kind of real quick, a little uh, background. Now, we kind of had to go through that because you've got to understand what's going on in chapter 7 as Paul now speaks because it's in this chapter that Paul is going to try to address a lot of these problems that are going on. Now, all right, I want to make some applications. And I've got five things that I think we can learn from chapter 7 that will help us as we try to deal with conflict not just in the church, but also even in our marriages or in all our social relationships, and what especially we can do to maintain unity and healthy relationships. Uh, and so, first of all, number one, there are things that people do that are wrong, and we need to confront them. There are times when we need to confront wrongdoing. Um, now, I'm not talking about little things that people do. Uh, you know, I think we've kind of reached a point in our culture right now where people have got, become very thin-skinned. And it's like anything anybody says, they get upset and they cancel you and you can't even talk to them. They're, you're just dead to them. Well, I think we need to put on our big boy pants and get a little more thicker skin than what I, I think is going on here. That there are lots of, you know, we all are imperfect. And we say and do things, we don't intend to hurt somebody's feelings or offend somebody. There are just little things that happen, and, you know, we need to be mature enough that, ah, forget that. It's okay. Let it be. But there are things that happen that uh, someone in, it falls into sin, and it's going to destroy them spiritually, or it's going to destroy their relationship with God. Or they've said something, and it's really offended somebody, or they've hurt us very deeply, and it reaches the point where it's hurting relationships, whether it's with God or among us in our relationships. I think when it reaches that level that it starts damaging relationships, then it's a problem and it needs to be addressed. And we need to have the courage to confront wrongdoing when it reaches this level. But of course, conflict is uh, very difficult. 
and we really, really try to avoid it. And so we excuse ourselves. We say things like, uh, well, uh, it's not very loving. I don't want to hurt people's feelings. Or we say it's uh, judgmental, you know, and Jesus says, uh, judge not that you be not judged. And so that's maybe not something that we Christians should do. And, of course, uh, to confront someone goes against our culture, which has become just tolerant of anything, and there's no longer any one standard of, of right and wrong. So if you go and you try to confront some, someone about what they have done wrong, they say, well, who are you to impose your standard of right and wrong on me? And uh, so to confront people kind of goes against uh, the grain of our culture. And then, of course, there's a lot of fear. We're afraid. I mean, who wants to confront somebody and see them get angry and then we suffer rejection and we suffer the loss of a relationship that we may care very deeply about. Now, I think we need to realize that these excuses are not legitimate and we can't let them uh, hinder us from confronting wrongdoing when it occurs. To say that it's not loving, uh, I would argue it's not loving for us to allow someone to do something that's going to hurt them or hurt them spiritually in their relationship with God or hurt other people. I mean, if, if somebody is engaged in sin and we, let, we don't say anything, it's probably going to continue and it probably will get worse and it's going to destroy them spiritually in their relationship with God. I don't think that's loving to let them do that. If someone gets drunk and they go to get behind the wheel and drive home, I don't think it's loving to say, well, I don't want to confront them. Don't judge, let you be judged. And we let them get in the car and they drive home and they have a wreck, kill themselves or somebody else. I don't think that's a very uh, loving thing to do. And if they've hurt somebody else or they've hurt us and so bitterness and resentment begins to build up in our hearts, I don't think it's loving just to ignore that. And then to say that it's uh, judgmental. I'm really tired of this passage being so badly misunderstood and, and abused. Uh, we have to understand what Jesus is really talking about. He's talking about these guys, namely the Pharisees, who are self-righteous. They don't deal with their own sins, and so they're just hypocrites. But they want to elevate themselves above everybody else and put themselves in a judgment seat where they can condemn everybody else for what they're doing wrong, but they don't deal with their own sin. And I don't, so I don't think that we want to let that stop us from dealing with legitimate things that arise that we need to have the courage to confront and deal with. There are problems arise, and we need to deal with it, and it's not judgmental. And then this idea of our culture. Our secular modern culture rejects that there's any one standard of living, uh, one, excuse me, one standard of right and wrong that all human beings need to submit to. Now, folks, that is not a biblical worldview. And we can't allow our culture to intimidate us, as I believe is happening with the majority of Christian people in America right now. We're intimidated by our culture. And uh, we're not speaking up against some things that are going on. And I don't think that's loving. And I don't think we should allow our culture to dictate what we Christians do or don't do. And then... Yes, confronting someone may destroy the relationship. But if we do confront someone, it can resolve the problem and st actually strengthen our relationship. Because you see, relationships are not static, they're dynamic. Really, our relationships are either growing stronger or they're actually getting weaker by ignoring them. I think we need to understand the purpose of confrontation. 
The reason you do confront a problem when it arises is in order to correct the problem, uh, to bring about a change of behavior. You see, if somebody is sinning, chances are they're going to keep doing it and only get worse, and so the problem is going to destroy them spiritually. Or somebody has offended somebody else, or they've done something to hurt you, and they have this behavior that's offending you. If you don't address it, it probably will continue to get worse, and it will continue to bother you, and, build, and, and resentment and bitterness begins to build up in your heart, and that will end up destroying your relationship with them. So if you confront them, yeah, it may terminate the relation right away, but if you don't and you try to avoid the problem, what happens then is your relationship dies a very slow, miserable death. I don't think conflict avoidance is an option when we're trying to maintain healthy relationships and maintain unity in the body of Christ. Well, because Paul did in fact value his relationship with the Corinthians, and he did value them, this, this thing will work, <laughs> all right? Uh, because he did value the Corinthians and his relationship with them, uh, he did not avoid confronting with them. Now, he says, I regretted it, I hated to do it, but it was necessary, and as a result, it did lead to repentance. And so the questions that they had had about Paul were basically removed, their relationship with Paul was strengthened, and it brought about reconciliation and unity. Not only with Paul and the Corinthians, but also this man who had offended Paul. And Paul says, now he has also repented, so now you need to forgive him and reaffirm your love with him. So we need to uh, address wrongdoing, and uh, we need to have the courage to do that. Okay, number two, humility. Humility is the openness and the willingness to admit wrongdoing. When we've done something wrong, we admit it, we apologize, and we change our behavior. Repentance, in other words. The Corinthians, it's obvious that they were open to Paul. They had the humility to listen to him, and they changed their behavior. They repented, and uh, Paul talks about this. Uh, but, you know, we do need to ask ourselves a question. What is it that hinders us from being, being able to admit wrongdoing? Why is it that when someone confronts us, our natural tendency, our you know, knee-jerk reaction is to get angry and tell them to take a hike and, you know, uh, ignore it. What is it? I, I think we know. It, it has to do with our pride or its twin, low self-esteem, or we're just stubborn. Stubbornness. We don't want to change. None of us like to have to change what we're doing. And so because of that, we tend to resist admitting wrongdoing and apologizing for it. Uh, but we need to be willing to give up our pride and our stubbornness and, and try to seek humility in dealing with people. You see, humility is very important if we are to maintain healthy relationships. We've got to be willing to listen to someone, even when they may be cr criticizing something that we've done. Uh, number three, uh, we need to practice forgiveness. Forgiveness is not holding on to past offenses. Now, it's not forgiving if someone apologizes. You say, okay, I forgive you. Then five years later, you bring that back up and hit them over the head like a hammer. That's not forgiveness. And I must add, too, that uh, forgiveness is not uh, tolerance. And, uh, you know, what forgiveness is is burning the indictment, burning the arrest warrant. It's gone. You can't serve it again. It's gone. It's the past. But if you bring it back up again, well, 
you need to face the fact that you probably really haven't forgiven them for what they have done. Well, it's clear from reading 2 Corinthians that uh, the Corinthians had, in fact, um, for, uh, asked, apologized to Paul, and Paul had forgiven them. And not only that, but he had forgiven the man who had confronted him and, and disrespected him. That man had repented, so uh, Paul now tells them, you need to forgive that man, and you need to reaffirm your love for him. So we might also add to the fact that forgiveness involves reaffirming your love to someone. Uh, it, it is about reconciliation. But if you notice within your heart you're still having some bitterness and hurt there, and this is easy to do, but if it's still there, then you know you, you, you probably really haven't fully forgiven them, and that's something to pray about and take it to God, or maybe you need to talk with them even further about it. But we need to, at the end of the day, try to seek reconciliation with those who have offended us. Now, the problem is, of course, reconciliation is not always possible. It's not always possible. While it was the fact that most of the Corinthians had, had uh, apologized and Paul had forgiven them and unity had been reestablished, there is still the sad fact that for some in the congregation, there was still conflict with Paul. And, of course, that's why he ends up writing 2 Corinthians and, and dealing with this chapter 7 that we're looking at. This is the thing that I struggle with, I think, the most. What do you do when someone has done something really wrong or they've really hurt you, and you try to go talk to them, and they won't listen? And they won't, even, they won't admit they did anything wrong. They don't recognize it, or they just won't apologize. And... It's deeply hurt you, and they haven't asked for forgiveness. They haven't apologized. I mean, what do you do with that? I don't know if you're like me, but there's one or two people in my life that a relationship has been lost, and I still have a lot of uh, anger about it. And uh, they have never apologized for it, and that relationship is broken. And I, I've talked to God about it, and I don't know quite what you do about that. The only thing that I've thought about is the, the realization that we live in a very broken world and this side of, of eternity, some of these relationships are just damaged and are going to remain that way until the other side of eternity. And in the meantime, all I know to do is to, is to pray about it and turn it over to God and let it be, and maybe God can bring about some kind of reconciliation uh, and work things out for the good somewhere down the road. So we do need to practice a forgiveness. Uh, number four, we need to maintain a positive attitude, a non-critical attitude towards others. It's amazing how we really create our own reality. If you think the best of somebody, it's amazing how they'll live up to that. But if you think the worst of people, they have a way of not disappointing you. <laughs> they turn out about the way you thought they would. Um, it is uh, amazing how you do that. And then as I look at Paul, I'm amazed at Paul's attitude about the Corinthians. He says, look, I boasted to Titus about you, and when Titus got there, you didn't embarrass me. You proved that you are who I thought you would, and I have complete confidence in you. Now, I don't know about you, but there's not another church in the New Testament I know that was more caught up in sin, more division, more messed up than the Corinthian church. And if I'd been Paul, I have to tell you, I think I would have been tempted to say, well, that one was a dud let me try again and plant another church. But that's not what Paul did. He didn't withdraw from them. He didn't condemn them. In fact, he says, I have great confidence in you. 
You see, Paul believed the best in them, and he was patient with them. I've learned that in dealing in mission work because people, you know, it takes time for people to become a Christian and learn what it's really about. And it sounds like what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13 when he said love is patient and love believes what is best about someone. And so we need to really work at our attitude to maintain positive regard for other people. Uh, number five, and this is my last one, we need to have sincere, pure motives, especially when we're confronting someone about something they've done wrong or they've done to hurt us. And if we have ulterior motives, selfish motives, you know, people aren't dumb. They'll realize it, that we have some other ulterior motive. And it will hinder our ability to, repa uh, to repair the relationship. Uh, Paul had to defend himself in the Corinthian letters because he was being attacked by these sophist teachers. And he says, look, uh, he says, we have wronged no one. Uh, we have wronged no one. Uh, we have um, uh, not corrupted anyone. We've not taken advantage of anyone. Of course, the sophist teachers had. They were after prophets, see. But Paul had not. And he says, I know I wrote this letter that grieved you, but it worked out for the good and it led about to repentance and a renewal of our relationship so it was only temporary and in the end no one suffered any loss and Paul had to defend himself and you hear what he says in the Corinthian letters he talks about the message he preached he says look, look I preached Christ and him crucified because I wanted your faith to rest in Christ and the cross not in my impressive speech like the sophist and he says Liz I didn't carry any letters with me because my letters are the fruit of my work, and you are the fruit of my work. You are my letters. And as far as his motives, he says, look, I didn't, I didn't preach for profit. In fact, I took nothing from you. I worked with my hands, probably tent making. And as far as suffering, I can't think of anyone who suffered more for the churches than Paul did. I mean, he was beaten, thrown in jail, slept on cold ground. And he mentions this in his Corinthian letters. He had suffered for these Corinthians. And he says, you know, that is a way of proving your character. Your motives are pure when you suffer for someone. And it proved his love for them. And so I think when we are involved in dealing with conflict, we need to make sure that we're acting out of love. You know, if you love someone and they know you love them, they're much, much more likely to listen to what you have to say than you're just, you know, doing it for some of their motive. If they know you love them, it's, it, it's how we really resolve our conflicts. And one of the things I would, I've observed that the ability to survive conflict requires that we already have a good relationship. It's necessary we already have a good relationship with one another because superficial relationships rarely survive conflict. And that's why I, I really have sometimes concerns for our culture today. Because, let's face it, in Western culture, I, you know, I've been in the East. Western culture, our relationships are pretty superficial. They tend to be utilitarian and temporary. You know, people are good for us for a while, but then, uh, you know, we get tired of them and they don't do it for us, so we'll go find somebody else. And I have to tell you that one of the biggest challenges, I think, for the church in Western culture 
is how in the world do we in the church build good, close, meaningful, deeper relationships with one another? Because, you see, coming together Sunday morning like this, and hi, how are you, and we kind of, you know, how was the Tennessee? They won yesterday. But, you know, how was the game yesterday? That doesn't really do it. And I have done a lot of thinking about this, and the only thing I know that I can figure out is that we really need to focus on small groups and middle-sized groups like Sunday school classes where over time you can build some relationships. It's hard to do it with a church this big, but in a small group or a Sunday school class, you can build those meaningful relationships, and we all need that because one of the reasons that we have trouble confronting and dealing with people when they fall into sin or when they, they're causing a problem in the church and and the leaders of the church try to go and talk to them, and they say, well, who do you think you are? And they get mad, and they say, go take a hike, and then they go to some other church. And the reason is because we haven't had those deeper, meaningful relationships uh, to start with. And that's one, one of the reasons why Paul, in these letters, he talks about his relationship with him. He says, look, make room for you, uh, make room for us in your hearts. Uh, you are in our hearts. Uh, I have great pride in you. Uh, the thought of you gives me great comfort. And he talks about how that he was in Macedonia and he was so filled with anxiety because he cared so much about the Corinthians and his relationship with them that when he got to Macedonia and Troas, there was an open door, but he couldn't stay there. He was just too full of anxiety. And then he talks about how that when Titus did come, Titus came and brought him good news that they have repented and the relationship has been healed. And he says, I just rejoiced. I was full of joy. And not only that, he says, but you also, your relationship with Titus now has given me comfort. You see, Paul is emphasizing the importance of relationships with the Corinthians because it's so important to dealing with conflict. Superficial relationships just don't stand up when there's, there's conflict or when someone really falls into sin and we need to address it. Uh, you know, if you want to have good relationships, you've got to work at it. Let's be honest, it takes work to build good relationships. You've got to value it, you've got to want it, and you've got to work at it. This Hollywood nonsense <clears throat> that we meet and fall in love and live happily ever after, it's just that, Hollywood nonsense. Folks, you know, if you've been married, it takes work. Sometimes a lot of work, <laughs> right? And if we're going to have good relationships, we've got to value it enough and make it a priority and work at it. Uh, because I think it is critically important if we're going to have good, healthy relationships in the church and have unity and be the family of God. Because, you know, our relationships in the church really ought to be the most important or at least some of the most important relationships in our life. So here are five things, I think, from our passage here in, in uh, chapter 7 that I think will help us as we try to maintain good relationships within the body of Christ. Because you see, I believe it is critical to being ambassadors of Christ. If we're going to really represent God who's a God of love, come on, we've got to be a people who know how to love each other and know how to deal with conflict and maintain that unity within the body of Christ. Well, we want to transition here to talk about what we call the Lord's Supper as we gather around the table. And as we do this this morning, I want you to think about our relationships. Because you see, when we gather around the table, we're gathering around the table like a family. 
uh, in, you know, like it was 100 or 200 years ago when families at the end of the day would come together and they would sit around the table and that's where they really talked and shared with one another and where their, it was a symbol of their, that they're a family and they identify with each other. You know, we know that the Lord's Supper came out of the Passover feast. It was a, a, a feast where people got together around the dinner table, and it's clear that in the early church that it used to be a dinner. On Sunday nights, they would get together, and they sat around the table and had a meal together. And, of course, we've kind of stripped it down to this cup and a piece of bread, and, and that's okay because it still is a metaphor for us that as we come together on Sunday mornings and we sit down to take this Lord's Supper, we're gathered together like a family, and Jesus is at the head, and we're celebrating our family relationship because we're in the kingdom of God now. Jesus is at the head. He's our Lord, and we're family got together around the table in fellowship with one another. And not only with us here at Sycamore View today, but there are people in Zambia. They've already taken the Lord's Supper, so we're all, all over the world now getting together this day. And think about them. They're there. They, they're here at the table too today because, you see, when we gather around the table, it, brought, it spans time and space. People all over the world are with us here as we gather around this table. And also, it spans time. Brother Paul is here with us today. Peter, the apostles. Our great-great-grandchildren hopefully are here with us around this table this morning. Time and space, we're gathered together as a family God the way it's going to be in eternity. We're sitting there at the table and Jesus is at the head. So as we take this Lord's Supper this morning, I want you to think about your relationships, how that we're family. I want you to think about what we might do or what you can do to deepen your relationship with other people here in this church? Do you need to get more deeply involved in a small group or in a Sunday school class? And if you're having conflict with somebody else, maybe even they're not even part of the church, but you're having conflict. I mean, what can we do to be more loving and to deepen and to resolve that problem and to reconcile that relationship? These are the things we ought to be thinking about as we sit down around the table of Jesus and take the Lord's Supper. Let's have a prayer as we uh, do this. Our Heavenly Father, we come together today. We are thankful that we are part of the kingdom of God, and we celebrate and rejoice that we're here together, sitting down at this table in the kingdom with you, Jesus, like it's going to be for eternity. And we're here. Well, Brother Paul is here, and Peter, and our, and our family generations from now. We're gathered together with the people of Africa and Greece today. They're here and we're family. And God, I pray that you'll help us to examine our relationships and to value them, to make them a priority in our life. And let's celebrate that we are a family in the body of Christ today as we take this bread and the fruit of the vine, which represent the fact that you died for us, that these walls and these things that divide us have been removed. We're now able to be family no matter what color, what ethnic group we come from. We're one in Christ. And so I pray in Christ's name. Amen.